I like big assessments and I cannot lie. You other therapists can't deny. So when a patient walks in with pain up in the face and you just want to erase it, you Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold on a minute here. This is a family-friendly podcast. Remember, this is the cleanest podcast series ever. What are you talking about, Dan? I was just going to say clarity. Well, you know, if you were going to say clarity, I guess I can give you that. I mean, we really all do like big assessments, but... No, big assessments give me clarity, and I like clarity and documentation. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back to Therapists in Motion podcast series. It's uh, Dan again here. I'm joined with Jen and Andrew again remotely. And we're about to do our third installment of our cleanest podcast series ever. We're going to talk about assessments. Hopefully you all have spent some time listening to Subjective and Objective and have started to see a change in your interactions with your patients and a change in your both initial evaluation and your daily notes. So let's talk about assessment. To Andrew and Jen, talk to me about what your guys' thought process is and what your underlying purpose is when you get to the assessment section, specifically treatment diagnosis. Well, and a lot of the students that I've helped mentor and develop them as a clinician, I tell them that the assessment is your money maker section. That for me, it's the most memorable por- portion of the exam. It should be, at least for the patient, in which you're truly synthesizing everything that you've learned from the subjective portion and the objective portion. And depending on how well you did on those two previous portions, you'll make your job, should hopefully be making your job, a whole lot easier to give a nice, clean assessment about what you believe is going on. And I feel like a lot of times with my students that they almost get a little bit more nervous or dumbfounded that that synthesis isn't quite there. They've already done pretty much the hard work of a good subjective and objective section, but whenever it gets that assessment, I see a little bit of a little bit of hesitation, but yet I believe it is one of the most powerful things that you can gift the patient with as they leave is what you think is going on and how you're going to help them. As well, it's the best thing as a clinician taking on another person's patients. If I took ben, uh, if I took Jen's patients, I would love to read her assessment almost first. Anytime I do a chart review, I love to know the thought process of the previous therapist so I know where I can maybe best interject with the patient. Yeah. Same. I was going to say, when I was in school, um, I had a clinical instructor tell me when I was struggling with assessment that you go through subjective is what the patient is telling you. Objective is what you're measuring. Assessment is what do you think about those other two. It's not a replication of the other two. It's what do you think about the other two. And since I've done my fellowship, I think I use my assessment more in Since I'm looking at functional movement and I'm correlating that to their goals, I try as best I can to answer the question, why would they have this pain or why would they have restriction in these specific goals based off of what I saw today? And I answer that question in depth as opposed to just restating objective. So both of you kind of mentioned circling back in information from subjective and objective but not necessarily regurgitating things that have been stated there. So can you guys help paint the 
the understanding for our listeners on on what that looks like and how you are, you know, to use some of the words, not replicating, but synthesizing that information and what that's looked like and evolved over your tenure as therapists. Sure, I'll go ahead and, and take this one first. Um, I think in the previous podcast, I've mentioned that my subjective section is more my interaction with that person's mind. I'm trying to get inside their mind, know how they operate, know what their goals are. And then my objective section is truly my communication with their body. What is their body telling me as part of their story? So I have, so after the subjective portion, I get their mind story. After the objective portion, I get their body story. And then finally, in the assessment section, I truly believe that's wherever I can really get the story of both of those interconnected, which I consider more of the spiritual connection point with the patient. A lot of patients know how to orate their pain and orate their dysfunction and, and tell you exactly what they what's going on, but they still haven't connected the dots, so to speak, of how that manifests in their body. I believe my job as a therapist is to connect those dots for them, not necessarily tell them from top down, I'm an authority figure, this is what's going on, but I love to use the phrases, well, what your body is telling me is this, and this correlates with what you're telling me with that. You know, does that all kind of make sense? <clears throat> I believe I use that strategy quite a bit my first um, five years, six years of clinical practice. Something that I'm trying to do uh, currently, I've been trying to do for the past year to challenge myself, is taking my assessment section maybe even one more step. I almost begin my evaluation process by telling the patient, which is me sticking my neck out a little bit, I say, if I do my job right, I'm not going to have to tell you a, a, anything about your body, but if I do my job right, everything that your body, that will be listening to your body and that your body will tell us what it needs. And so by the very end, if I do my subjective section well and my objective section well, I can sit back and just ask the patient one question. I say, what did your body tell you about what we did today? And most, most of the time, if I did a good job, which I'm not, I'm not batting as well as I'd like to in terms of percentage, that patient will come back and tell me, hey, was, I noticed that whenever I do this activity, I feel really unstable or I feel, I feel tight or I feel pain when I do this. But when I do these other things, I don't. So I feel like I should be doing some of these things and, and this, I, I can see how I can dial this back and this might help me here. What I, I love to, what I'm trying to challenge myself to do is if I did my job right, that that patient will essentially write my assessment portion for me, that they will be starting to connect the dots between their body, between their mind, which I believe is helping them overall take a ownership over their therapy and also get that buy-in of, of me coming alongside of them and, and teaching them a couple of other strategies, ideas to get their body to where they want it to be. That's awesome. So, I don't think I could say it better. <laughs> so can I ask a couple follow-up questions on that? So that sounds like you're not talking a lot about possibly impairments that were found. Is that Am I correct in, in inferring that based on your answer? Yeah, I, I would say we don't. I, in my opinion, we covered that already in subjective. And to where if you just focus on the problem and you focus on that, that becomes a more demoralizing experience. And that's and the, and the funny part is, is actually, thank you for bringing that up. Usually when I ask a patient, so what did you learn about your body today? They, I would say the majority of the time they come back and they say, well, it really, st you know, really hurts. It really stinks. This really sucks whenever I do this. I can't do that. 
you know, and, and, you know, they're usually right about that. But what I love to also expose them to, if they only focus on the negative, I'd split the tables on them. I said, but your body did a really good job with these things and these things and these things, right? And, and, and they will, and, and they will agree with me. It's so easy for a patient to come in and just think on the negative aspect of things, to see the things that they're unsuccessful with. And I believe a true assessment is, of course, exposing that, almost verifying that from their subjective and objective examination. But I think a, a truly good assessment shows where the patient is successful because it's really about the assessment's all about setting up for the plan. And, and if it's right. setting up for the plan, you want to set up a successful plan, not just stay away from this and that and that. More than likely, the patient is staying away from the things that are impairing them. That's the exact reason why you're there. They're there to ask you what is, is a good pathway. So it's really changing that their mindset from a unsuccessful mindset to a successful mindset. Yeah. I was going to say in my, um, in my assessments, I will take things that I've gathered very similar to Andrew, things that I've gathered from subjective, which my goal for subjective is develop rapport and make sure they come back and obviously start to filter out what I think is going on with them before I get into objective. But then objective is going to be anywhere from head to toe, mobility, stability, um, specific to what their goal is. And so by the time I get to subject or assessment, I want to tie those two things together and say, this patient might be having these issues previously stated in objective specific to walking. And it can, it can hinder their walking because of why? Why Why would they not be able to walk based off of what I saw today and try to actually put it back relevant to what was their goal that they told me about in their subjective? And then in addition to that, put in other factors that may affect therapy. So if, um, if they struggle with anxiety, depression, if, you know, that might worsen prognosis, if I see that they've been inconsistent with a previous episode of care, um, and that might affect prognosis, different things like that. So if somebody's looking real quick at an assessment before they go to treat them, then they know, okay, where do I want to go with this patient from here on a deeper level? Yeah, I think that you guys both have hit on some 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 key points there that, you know, it, <clears throat> going away from an impairment model is helpful for some people. However, for other people, the impairments can help then connect them more appropriately to functional limitations and help them keep their plan of care, as Andrew alluded to, more streamlined and not get bogged down in the, the messiness or the complexity that could exist. So I would say when I'm looking at my assessment, similar to you guys, where I, I'm, I'm trying to synthesize that information from subjective and objective, I'm probably identifying some impairments where they're not successful because hopefully I can make a direct connection to why that's affecting their functional capabilities. Um, I also try and highlight the things that they're successful in, especially identifying of the six movements, anterior, posterior, uh, right lateral, left lateral, right rotation, left rotation, which of those six movements are they the most successful in? And, and that hopefully is highlighted in my home exercise program. But then also, like Jen said, why, trying to start articulating why I think they have the things going on that they have going on. Is it due to a combination of poor chain reaction biomechanics? 
Is it due to decreased strength? Is it due to decreased range of motion? Or is the patient simply in too much pain for me to really truly assess those things that I would really like to assess? Um, right. I think when I do chart audits of people, I see a, I see a, a, a broad spectrum of that. And sometimes I get frustrated when, like Andrew mentioned, you know, I'm seeing somebody's patient and the first place I go to is assessment and I'll see a couple things. I'll see patient presents with signs and symptoms consistent with referring, referring diagnosis of right shoulder pain, period. And that's it. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> there's, there's no clinical reasoning that has occurred in this clinical chart. So me trying to audit to take care of their patient, I have no idea what's going on and I have to spend a lot more time reading their chart. The other time, yeah. the other thing I'll see is, is okay, well, they had abnormal gait mechanics, they had poor posture, and they had increased pain, period. And that's it. That's all that they talk about. They don't talk about what else they think is causing that or why they think that's going on, which sometimes is frustrating and it doesn't paint the whole picture, right? I mean, I mm-hmm. remember, you know, go, going back to PT school, I remember a couple of our professors t- saying, when you write an assessment, you should be able to put it down in the table and you can grab eight therapists and all eight therapists have a picture in their head of this patient. Right. I really like that. Yeah, and, me too. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that's honestly, that's very convicting. I bet if you did a chart audit on me, I would not be flying. I would not be passing with flying colors throughout. And But I love the challenges that that brings. I mean, in a sense, you're just... I think what I'm hearing from you, Dan, it's a great summary of what is going on with the patient as well as a, kind of a entry line of what likely we're going to be doing about that, which will be found more in the plan. But I like how you just mentioned that you're not really so, so focusing on what the diagnosis, the, the, the medical diagnosis, the structural diagnosis, that it sounds like, Dan, you're saying you'd like to hear something a little bit more about movement if they're having more difficulty going anterior, posterior, right lateral, left lateral, right rotational, left rotational. That would give you more information than just shoulder pain, correct? Yeah. I mean, I I think that that's something that's evolved over my tenure and I'm still working on. And I I can honestly say I don't, I'm not, I don't bat a hundred percent of the, or a a thousand either. I'm not batting a thousand. Um, But it's something like you said, I'm striving to do. And when I, when I speak to new therapists within our company, when I speak to my friends that work in other places, my challenge is really, you know what? The only place we have to articulate our thoughts is in the assessment. So if we don't articulate our thoughts, how does anybody, whether it's a colleague, it's a supervisor, it's a insurance company, it's an authorization uh, representative from an insurance company, how do they know what we're thinking, let alone what our plan is, right? So right. now the hard part comes is, well, how do I do that succinctly? And how do I not do it so it takes me 45, you know, how do I avoid the 45-minute assessment, right? right. Um, but I think as you continue to challenge yourself to, to get to that level, you'll find ways to be more succinct. Well, to give your credit in terms of being succinct, Dan, it seems like you already, what you said just a few minutes ago, really highlights a succinct way to do it. For me, I think it'd be very valuable information for any diagnosis, no matter what body part, if you at least identified the 
plane of motion that is the, su- the successful one and the unsuccessful one. So really, if, if I were to see a, an assessment of another therapist who I'm, I'm treating their patient that day, it'll at least be very helpful in the assessment just to say, you know, this person has, you know, essentially has, has some sort of knee pain and has difficulty with frontal plane uh, motions, lunges or reaches or whatever it may be. That would be huge information for me to, to know. I mean, it, that doesn't sound too difficult. Essentially, you're just saying, hey, uh, so I, I say a succinct way is just identify one of those planes that they're having issues with or maybe they're having success with. And if you want to double click into that, you can take it through sagittal plane, meaning you can take it anterior or posterior, and then you can get your six different variables that way. I don't think that should be very difficult. I think that'd be a great challenge that if you're not writing some sort of directionality into your assessment, maybe it's not the most complete. And maybe people, the eight therapists sitting around the table, wouldn't really have a clear picture about how your patient is moving. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking about <clears throat> oftentimes, you know, you alluded to your education of students and all instead of students, I'll say, well, okay, I'm going to educate my support staff, a technician or a physical therapist assistant, right? Who may be caring for this patient. And I'm going to say, okay, like this morning I had a new patient and I said, here's the places where she was successful as I'm talking to my technician and, and, and my therapist assistant who's sitting at his desk, you know, and, and I said, Hey, by the way, you're going to be seeing this patient as well. And I said, she's really successful anterior, posterior, right rotation, left rotational, not as successful going left side lateral, right side lateral. So automatically that's going to help me when I go back and I start to write her assessment, right? Because those things that I'm doing from an educational standpoint should end up in her assessment, right? And that should then correlate to what her home exercise program looks like where I'm giving her things to do successfully on her own away from my guidance, right? You know, kind of what we alluded to in in previous podcasts is, you know, those patients are only under our our supervision for a few hours a week. So why would I want to give them something for home that they aren't successful with in my own clinic? Yeah. And, and, I agree with that. And all too often, I think our therapists or, or, or what I've seen is that's not the mentality that they go about, right? And and I think, and our, my hope is, and I think your guys' hope is too, is that we can help shift the, the paradigm in the world of physical therapy to say, let's, let's get away from things that make a patient painful and let's go to something that makes a patient successful, knowing that all three planes of motion happen all the time. And if you can find something that's successful due to chain reaction biomechanics, you're most likely going to make eventually the other plane successful. Would you guys agree with that? I would agree with that. But I had, I felt, I feel like that took me a while to kind of get and to be able to be comfortable chewing on and, and integrating with patients. Um, for me, when I first came out and practice, a lot of my objective was, Goni measurements and manual muscle testing and um, laying them on the table, special testing and things like that. And my assessment would reflect my, in my opinion, 
lacking knowledge of the closed chain biomechanics that were actually causing the problem. Um, so for you guys, how do you take a student that might have similar objective coming out and have them put together a good assessment with that type of information? I mean, I think what you said about how the assessment is really reflection and is only really based upon what came preceding it, the subjective and the objective portion. So for that student to write a better you know, assessment, for those that are listening that want to build their, uh, their confidence in their assessments and, and functional diagnoses, I'd say, well, you got to fall back. All that, all that you want is supported by the evidence that, that you have gained. And so if you're struggling with the functional diagnosis, maybe it's because you didn't really do very many things functional with them during the objective section. It's not, it's, it's easy, it's, it's hard to say this person has, say, five out of five knee extensor strength compared with this person has difficulty with doing a deep squat. Now, one captures function, one captures more of the structure, which is the one that you want to rely most on to build a good movement diagnosis to where a clinician following you knows what you're talking about. And so for me, helping the student is more relying back on the principles of, of what you're trying to accomplish with the patient. And once they understand the principles more, it's almost easier to tell the story. I, my um, Christy Schaft, who is my clinical director in Fountain Hills, always like to talk about documentation in terms of a story. And sometimes that helps me, and I've used that same kind of analogy for uh, with students as well. You know, you're, you're in the very beginning uh, with a subjective portion. That's kind of like your introduction to the book. You know, you, you're developing your characters and the story. And then your objective section should be pretty much that, like, rising action. That's where things should be getting a little bit exciting. But then your assessment portion is right where you have that climax of, of the book, of the story. And, it, and, and finally, the plan is more the resolution of the story and, and how you're wrapping things up. And so if I look at it from a sequential standpoint, if you're having difficulty with the assessment portion, it's probably because you're not understanding the story that that patient's telling you, the story with their mind, the story with their body. And so you can't really get a good, a good climax to their story. Give them, a, you know, looking at giving them some sort of a good resolution to their episode of care if you don't have good information, if you don't have that character development, if you don't have that rising action. So I just go back to the principles time and time and again with, with students and those that I mentor. Yeah, I, I think that's that analogy you just put there is brilliant for our, for our listeners to, to really spend time reflecting on, on, on those components of subjective objective assessment and then eventually plan, right? Um, I'll say <clears throat> I, I don't dissuade my students from doing goniometric measurements, special tests, um, manual muscle testing. I don't dissuade that. What I then try and do is say, okay, what else can we look at? You know, and, and this is going back a little bit to objective, right? But what else can we look at that does help paint the picture of this patient? So did those things that you did do they fully capture that patient? Yes or no? And if the patients, if the, if the student says, or the young therapist says no, then my next question is pick one thing to do next. Start with one thing, right? Because it might be something as simple as gait and say, well, I'm just going to, I'm going to evaluate gait again. Okay, great. 
well, now I don't know where to go. Okay, well, you saw that they had a deficit in gate. Now let's think about how we break down gate. And that's where I usually start with students and new grads is, okay, there's nothing wrong. And technically, we should be doing those going into metric measurements, special tests, um, strength measurements when it's indicated. Um, and, and I'm pretty sure every continuing education course that I've been to, regardless of who's, who's sponsoring it, who's leading it, will say those same things. This isn't necessarily to replace those things. It's to add to those things, right? It's still our professional mm-hmm. responsibility to know when it is indicated or not indicated to perform a special test or to perform going in a, a formal goniometric measurement or a formal muscle, uh, muscle, manual muscle test. But finding that missing link, and usually when I'm reading their assessments, I can help them spot that, right? And say, go back and read this. Go back Now go back and read their current slash prior level of activity. Did those components match up? And most of the time, then they say no. And that's where then I can go to, all right, let's, let's think about adding a functional component to it. Um, I know that that's, you know, that's a little bit of assessment. That's a little bit of subjective. That's a little bit of objective. But I think, again, as, as going to Andrew's point, that's really helping them connect the story of that patient. Yeah. Beautifully said. I like the idea of everything matching up. It should match up through. Well, and, and I, I like your, just to, to identify one thing. I think that's what's, what's sometimes hard whenever... Uh, during the assessment, a student gets some sort of stage fright or a new clinician gets a little bit of stage fright. You have probably have more than just one thing you can share with that patient. But if you if you can't think of if all the options are overwhelming, I bet you can come up with one solid rock in which you can base a good assessment on and develop a decent plan of care. And for some patients that are really difficult, sometimes all I find is one semi-solid rock on things that I can do. And that's where with that assessment, and that's okay to say, you don't know the whole picture. You can't get the whole picture your first time with the patient. It's a story mm-hmm. that will continue to unfold through your whole entire episode of care. And I think that's where I believe a lot of entry-level clinicians, they feel like they have to have it all together right right now. All I'm looking for with, with taking a patient, me personally, is taking that one full step forward. Can I just take one step? Yes, they might have a thousand more to take, but can I, can I at least take the one step confidently to where we're heading down the right path? Yeah, I think that's a huge point to highlight there that I fully expect your assessment to evolve throughout the course of the treatment, right? Now, I'm guilty of this as well where I'm like, okay, well, I'm not necessarily going to change my treatment diagnosis, but maybe I'll put it in justification for continued skilled care or the response to that session that's like, hey, I uncovered three additional layers during this session for whatever reason, right? Right. Maybe it's because their pain's less. Maybe it's because they have more successful movements or they can tolerate a greater load or they can tolerate a greater duration. But I want to make sure that we highlight that just because your treatment diagnosis on day one, like Andrew alluded to, that may not be the whole picture. And it is okay and it actually should be highlighted to modify your treatment diagnosis as you continue to get, you know, find additional layers, uh, unlock different, you know, components of movement or successful movements or reduce pain. And now they can have a greater freedom of motion. I want to make sure that, that our profession isn't scared to make those modifications, right? I actually think that shows a higher level of thought process 
and solidifies our place, quote unquote, at the proverbial medical table because we can do those things. Absolutely. And I think going back to the story analogy, if you're taking that and adapting that treatment diagnosis and talking back to the first day, but then conforming it to what you're finding as you continue to treat the patient, then you're continuing along the same storyline as opposed to a lot of follow-up assessments that I'll read is just like patient-tolerated treatment well. It's like, well, that doesn't say a whole lot about where your head's at, where they're at, how are they relative to their goals, and getting deeper in your thought process. Yeah, I think that's that's a huge point right there that, you know, if we talk about assessment on follow-up visits is, what did you do? Why did you do it? And how did the patient respond? And I think if you can think about those three questions as you do your follow-up assessments, one, that's going to help you be a little bit more succinct because <laughs> uh, uh-huh. we all know documentation is a drag. Two, I think that's going to help continue your evolution and thought process. And three, I think it's like you just mentioned, it's going to continue to help that quote-unquote story evolve and paint an even more clear picture of the patient as you continue to treat them. Right. Absolutely. What I'll tell patients a lot the very first day in initial eval is the goal of overall your episode of care is today we figure out a baseline. We see where you're at baseline and your mobility, your stability, and different components of what I'm going to look at. You just told me what your goals were. We talked whether or not those are realistic in the, I believe, subjective component of the podcast. But there's a gap between what you can do right now and what you want to be able to do. And so a good assessment, you're going to see that gap shut and close and close and close. And you should be able to see that bridging in in your assessment of their ability to just do more and more and more and do better the longer that they're in therapy. Yeah, I, I love that analogy of a bridge. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you, that's, what, that's what we're there to do, to bridge people's gaps. Right. That's awesome. Yeah, I think that's a really great kind of summative closing comment there, Jen. Um, well, thank you. You know, I think that as I, as I reflect back on, on what all the things that we've, we've covered, I really think we've given our listeners some really key nuggets to help make themselves better. Um, which in turn is going to help their patients get better faster, right? Which is going to result in a hopefully a more positive outcome. But on the uh, as well as it's going to help our profession get better because it's going to start to differentiate those therapists that are consistently striving to make positive gains with their patients and with themselves, which in turn is going to have a better outlook of, of physical therapy as a whole. So I, I really want to thank you guys for your time, your wisdom, um, your vulnerability of, of sharing kind of your evolution. Um, so, so thanks, guys. Um, listeners, stay tuned. We're going to do a, a part four of the cleanest podcast series ever uh, on plan. Um, but, you know, every episode, uh, most every episode, Paul and I, Paul and or I or Jen make a comment about, you know, any feedback please email us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Well, I want to make a shout out because not once but twice, one of our listeners, Nicole W., has sent us some feedback and, you know, some very positive, encouraging feedback. So we, we greatly appreciate that. And, uh, you know, what I really want to empower our listeners is send us topics, send us ideas. Um, 
you know, we want to know what, what things you guys are, are dealing with with your colleagues or with your students or that things you've struggled with in your professional career. And if the, you know, if, if us main hosts can't find the answer, we'll go find somebody that, that can assist in helping answer that question to provide clarity and help you guys along your professional journey. So, so Nicole W., Nikki, uh, thanks for the feedback. It's greatly appreciated. Jen, Andrew, thanks for joining us. It's, it's always fun, and we look forward to having you guys on uh, moving forward. Um, as always, if you have any feedback or ideas, please do email us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Thanks, and have a great day. Thanks, Dan.